Hello, and welcome to Cubicle Confidential, weekly advice for the working stiff. I'm Chris DeSantis, and let me introduce my new co-host, since Mary is not available at the moment, my good friend, Tim McClure. Hey, Tim. Hey, Chris. How you doing today? I'm doing really well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing, doing well? <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, we'll go Jersey if you want. We can do that. <laughs> so anyway, Tim, uh, just listeners, uh, Tim and I, uh, actually, he was the substitute host. If you remember our last two episodes on strategy, strategy, I think it was uh, strategy. Strategy, thank you very much. And so <laughs> uh, Tim has decided no, to... No. Yeah, Tim has decided to stay on for a little while while Mary is absent. So anyway, Tim, uh, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself again so that you can remind them who you are and who we are to each other. Yeah, happy to do so. Uh, hello, listeners. Happy to be back with you. Uh, so my background is in strategy and market research, uh, a lot of uh, strategic planning, voice of the customer work, and so forth. So uh, hopefully bring an organizational perspective here and, and try to help the listeners uh, navigate some of their workplace dilemmas. Looking forward to it. Me too, Tim. What we're going to be doing this week is we have a few questions on, on a topic. This, I guess this week's topic is generally called misfires. And so we'll be answering a few questions on that topic. And then afterwards, uh, I did a little research, actually, uh, on, on what, what does the marketplace say about misfires? And we'll get to that in a moment. But before I even begin there, I thought I'd just start off with uh, getting acquainted with Tim. I was, I was talking to Jack. Jack is our producer, uh, our, our wonderful producer. And he mentioned uh, an interesting thing to me. He said, you know, maybe we should start off with sort of uh, decisions among us about what we like or what we don't like that uh, relative to each other. And, and I thought, I, I mean, I went back to my childhood when he said this, because I, I was thinking, and I don't even know if Tim's old enough to remember this, but I was a big Godzilla fan when I was a kid. And I was a big, and so when I was in my, I don't know, 12 or so, when I saw the first version of Godzilla, I thought, this guy's amazing. And then I would watch all the Godzilla movies. And then I got to the point where I knew all the monsters. And so I have, a, I have this thing where I always thought Mothra was a better monster than Godzilla, even though they were both good monsters. And I don't know if you have any background in any of these creatures, but uh, I, <laughs> I just found myself on memory lane. I don't know, Tim, but... The, so. Well, that's that's fantastic. I think that predates me a little bit. I thought you were going to go to, might. to radio, might. like, uh, you know, the shadow <laughs> knows. Like, I didn't know how far back you were going to go there. Uh, I'm much more familiar with Godzilla from the, the more contemporary movies, but oh, uh, yes. clearly a, a badass amongst large-scale creatures. Well, actually, in your world, because you are significantly younger, you would have had Godzilla versus King Kong. That would have been your, your, your namesake. And in For that... And I'm not sure in that contest who I'd vote for. Again, I, 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 I always default to Godzilla because he could really smash things. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Jack, you, you, you asked if he had a background in Godzilla. Do you have a ba do you happen to have a background in <laughs> Godzilla? <laughs> Get a bachelor's in Godzilla. Uh, have well, you seen this it, meme? There's a meme that's just out right now that shows. No. Uh, what the depth, like if they show Godzilla in the ocean and 
how long his legs would have actually had to be to, to, <laughs> in his legs are like hundreds funny. of feet long. It's disgusting. <laughs> it can't be unseen. That, that's a uh, cottage industry, the stilts for Godzilla. Not a, not a lot of well, demand for that product. And I and I know, and I know I'm waxing po- poetic, but there was a, a version of the Godzilla movie, the athletic Godzilla, that didn't play well. I don't know if anybody remembers seeing that one. This is did where he throw the much- discus? No, he had more of a an, an athletic sort of creatures build, where the the traditional Godzilla has a bulking sort of low uh, low canter, low walk, you know, like trudging along. Uh, but the the athletic Godzilla never really sang in terms of we real Godzilla fans. <laughs> well, Boy, I'm sure we, this was all very helpful to our listeners. We, we all learned something today, whether whether we wanted to or not. <laughs> Well, maybe we won't be doing this again, which brings us back to the topic at hand, misfires. Absolutely. People's Exhibit A. <laughs> so anyway, Tim, would, are you ready for taking on a question? Yeah, fire away. This is going to be fun. All right. So let me take on our first one. This is from Electrifyingly Bad. Hello. I'm working at a not-to-be-named car dealership, and we just got sent the company's new EV, I guess the electric vehicle. It sucks. I can't tell you how many things about that vehicle I don't like. On top of that, it's ugly. Corporate and the dealership have been telling us to tout its many features, but it makes a Pontiac Aztec look like a cleverly designed and executed SUV. That's funny. There's a joke about that out there. I can't bring myself to push this on unwitting buyers, but also I can't do without this job. Are there any clever ways to look like I'm towing the company line and not screwing over customers who are dumb enough to buy this thing? Once again, signed, electrifyingly bad in white planes. (laughs) Okay, Tim, what do you think? Wow, a doozy right out of the gate. So my first thought is, wasn't Pontiac also responsible for the Fiero, not just the Aztec, yes, but the Fiero, yes, that kind that, of little sports car? That little plastic sports car, that was a horrible little piece of machinery as well. Maybe Pontiac will sponsor next week's episode. <laughs> there is no more Pontiac. <laughs> <laughs> we play our cards right. Um, all right, so White Plains, whoa. Okay, so a couple things come to mind. Um right away one you know beauty is in the eye of the beholder right and mm-hmm. and we can we learn in marketing you are not the customer so uh, it's not necessarily your personal opinion about this car it's uh you know what the customer might think about it so i would say try to set your feel- feelings aside a- as much as you can um you know when we're talking about car shopping the customer is self-selecting so they didn't just wander in they chose your dealership uh and so i think they know what they're in for so they must be at least curious about this so you know i think my advice here would be set your personal feelings aside try to you know tout the features and benefits and if this person has different tastes and is genuinely interested in this vehicle, you know, far be it from you to stand between them uh, and their dream car, if that's what it is. Uh, uh, Tim, I think that's really uh, clear advice. I think that, and by the way, Tim does a lot with the voice of the customer. And I think your, the meta point here is it's the customer's choice, not your choice. 
But at the same time, you don't want to misdirect the customer down some path that you know that they might be a better option, which brings to mind the old um, selling approach. I, I bring this up because it came to mind when we were talking about this. I use, uh, I think, in terms of spin. Tim, do you remember it was spin selling? Sure. Spin, spin selling is sort of the classic version of how one sells. And it's not about one selling. It's about finding a need. And so the, the SPIN is an acronym that stands for first the situation. So as Tim made the point, they wander into your showroom and you say, so what brings you here today? You know, and they'll say, oh, Joe's looking, whatever the thing is. But they will talk about what their situation is and then what challenges do they face. So when they drift over to an EV, in my worldview, an EV is about not, uh, not, not having gasoline, saving on that money and all that. So anyway, what is the problem they're facing with this particular EV in terms of what it will solve? It might be a family issue in terms of numbers of people and so on. So when you hear their problem, then what are the implications of not solving that problem? Or what are the implications attached to solving that problem? So would you like it where you never had to pay for gas? Would it be helpful if you had a situation where the back door opens all automatically, all the things? And then what you do is the needs pay off that is the end, the needs is, well, this car does these things. So the point I think I'm making here, as with Tim is making, is we're giving them something that is relative to what they want. And if it isn't what they want in terms of the needs they have met, then you should be redirecting them to other parts of the showroom with the uh, vehicles that are more appropriate to who they are and what their, their needs are. Yeah, I I, I, that's, a, that's a nice framework to, to sort of set this up. And, and I guess, you know, Somebody is interested in an EV, right? So does your dealership have more than one? If they don't have more than one, then it's binary. It's this one or they're going to they're gonna walk out the door. If there are others, then, you know, it's sort of the contrast of this one versus that one. You know, the, the first kind of mass uh, uh, successful hybrid on a mass basis was the Prius, right? Um, and, oh, yes. And part of that car was it was, uh, to many people's eye, ugly, but on purpose because it was a status symbol. The owners of these cars wanted you to make no mistake. Look at me. I am driving a hybrid. They didn't want to blend in with the crowd like so many new uh -oh. cars do. So um, there are certainly buyers who have different motivations and, 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 you know, that's what they want. So again, you know, understanding, as you've said, what is this customer looking for? Um, and, you know, what can I do to put you in this car today? Uh, the, the other thing um, that our friend here from White Plains can do is, uh, are other salespeople selling this car? Are they flying off mm. the showroom? Are you the only one who has an issue? Do others have an issue? Um, maybe you could piggyback and or eavesdrop on somebody else's sales process. Maybe there are um, you know, features and benefits to this thing that you're not aware of. And so uh, maybe uh, with a little bit more information, you might have a different point of view on this thing. And again, if the customer wants it, it's, you know, it's your job to help them understand what they're getting and uh, complete that transaction, get your commission check and, and, you know, be on your way. Well, I like your point about the Prius as well, because I remember when it came out and I remember an article, and this was years and years ago. Hey, I do agree with you. Hideous car hideous car. But I remember the article that's saying there was no economic case for making a Prius. So the businesses wouldn't have made it, but the buyer wanted it. And I think that's the key here. He's your, your sales. This salesperson is losing sight of the fact that it's what the buyer wants, not what you want. So, but anyway, I should wrap up with this joke because there was a joke about uh, the Pontiac Aztec. What do you call a Pontiac Aztec in, in at the dealership? Uh, I don't know. What do you call a Pontiac Aztec at the dealership? 
a lifetime supply. <laughs> <laughs> that that's like the old joke where uh, uh, the accordion player went to the store and and left his accordion in the car, and and he left the car unlocked, and he and he went in the store, and he came back out, and there were two accordions. <laughs> I mean, that's funny. In fact, uh, speaking of accordions, I know this is really off topic and we're going on to the next question. My father used to play the accordion. And, and really? I did not know that. <laughs> that yes. explains so much. I know, but but he played the accordion and uh, I did not know that because he never played it in our company. I found out years and years later and, and so I bought him an accordion and then it disappeared. <laughs> I think he put it... <laughs> <laughs> it turns out he never this. enjoyed playing the accordion. Well, <laughs> anyway, that was great. So, uh, are you ready for another question? I guess it's up to you, right? Yeah, I can. I can go with the next one here under our theme of of misfires. Misfires. So this one is no tips if you do, no job if you don't in Geneva. I've been working at a as a server for a casual dining chain. Uh, it's unnamed, but listeners, just imagine in your mind your favorite casual dining chain. Maybe you're right. Uh, I know you folks have a lot of experience with restaurants and bars, so maybe you can help. Each week, they ask us to make specific suggestions to customers about what's good. I'm okay with that, but some of the what's good isn't, and I have a few regulars. Management wants me to say one thing. But if I do, my regulars won't be my regulars if I start pushing slop. Can I play both sides without either getting upset with me? Again, no tips if you do, no job if you don't in Geneva. Oh, that's great. I wonder which Geneva this is. I'm going to guess it's Geneva, Illinois, not Geneva, Switzerland, but it's just a guess. So, yeah, this was an interesting little question. It's it's actually it harkens back to the one we just did, really, about about the, the car dealership, about uh, a conscientious salesperson does not want to foist upon somebody that which they don't want. So I, I thought word, that was nice. The word foist is such a foist. good and underused word. It is a very underused word. I might use it again at a party. Uh, but anyway, coming back to this, again, I, I think uh, the, uh, the key here is honesty. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's, but this is a business. This is a business. They're trying to say, okay, these are the things we want to push on our, I hate to say push, we want to offer our customers. Now, um, what's interesting is that the, I think what she has to do is she has to play with the kitchen, kitchen as opposed to challenge that. Meaning that, look, she's got to work with the people you work with. So what she should be finding out is asking, okay, what are the high margin items? You know, what are the things that we, we, we sell to our customers that have the highest return? I understand features. I get the feature, but I, I, if, I'm the, if I'm the restaurant owner, I really want to get the return. So what can I be doing to do that? So in that sense, uh, if there's a way to sort of uh, get them on your side and say, okay, I'm going to push these items more than the others. Not that I won't say about the, the slop items availability, but I will certainly tout the ones that are better. The second thing I might do is, is that um, the, the customers themselves get, get, back to, get back to the kitchen saying what the customers are favoring, meaning what are their responses to the things you're serving, meaning that I hear this all the time. The customers love the such and such, the, you know, the 
I don't know whether the ribs, but they they don't seem to care as much about the you know the chicken casserole or whatever the thing is that they're selling. And the point here is you're informing the kitchen about customer taste. So so in that sense, the other and the last thing I'll make a point around is you said you have a regulars. Well, I would I think in the regulars case you would say, look, here's what they're uh, touting this week. This is why they like it. Uh, you, I know that you like this. If you want to try it, you know, I know your taste for this, but you're, you're more neutral with them. But the people who don't know you, you could always then more evenly tout the, the new offering, even though uh, you know it may not be to their liking. Anyway, that's my thoughts on this. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I guess my first question would be, why are we pushing these particular items, right? You mentioned yeah, right, they're, they're, they're right. high margin. Maybe they are. Uh, maybe it's a new recipe from the kitchen that, that is actually good and people just don't know about it because it's not familiar to them and it's, you know, they're, they're venturing into some new territory there. Um, but really, you know, we're at the heart of this sort of micro relationship that exists between diner and server. Right. right. And so when you ask someone, you know, do you like this or how's the such and such and they're pushing a special, it's sort of, I don't know this person, I'm kind of sizing them up, you know, how high risk is this with my decision? Um, you mentioned ribs, it rem reminds me of my brother-in-law who really likes to eat ribs and he likes a very particular kind of rib. So his strategy was always to ask the server in, in a, ve a very earnest and kind of excited way, do the ribs fall off the bone? And then if the server said, oh, why, yes, they do, he would say, okay, I'll have the burger because that wasn't <laughs> the kind of ribs that he wanted. And so he, he thought if this person's honest enough to tell me that they don't do this thing that I've led them to believe I want, then right. these are my kind of kind of slow smoked, a little more toothsome rib that I'm looking for. Um, so, you know, we all figure out how to navigate these situations. But, you know, I'd, I'd want to go back to why. Why are we pushing these things? Obviously, they want sales to be increased. Is that because we've got a lot of stuff? Do we have cases and cases of flounder or pork knuckle and we just need to move this stuff? <laughs> um, you know, why, why is it not selling as well um, as it does? And, and to that idea of slop, I know a lot of restaurants, certainly fine dining restaurants, they have kind of the staff meal, especially if there's a special, mm -hmm. they all eat it and they kind of go through mm -hmm. the tasting and oh, can you tell uh, the, that the artisan mushroom is in here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe they could do that around some of these dishes that, that our friend in Geneva thinks are slop or unpopular. Let's have everybody eat it, including management. And, and, you know, let's, let's get an honest reaction and, and maybe we can make some tweaks or maybe we, we just kind of move, move along from this menu item. Well, I, I think that's really sad. When you were talking about ribs, I'm funny, I was out to dinner last night and we were talking about this exact same thing, not this topic per se, but ribs. And all my friends enjoy ribs. I, I am one. I'm an outlier. I just don't have an affinity for ribs. I don't. Is, are, do you? I mean, your brother does. Sure, my, my bro, yeah, brother-in-law. My brother as well. Yeah, I, I like ribs. I like certain kinds of ribs. Um, but generally, you know, the whole barbecue genre, I'm very kind of uh, ready and willing to lean into that. I think, really? you know, it, what we need for you is if Tom Ford could come out with a bib, uh, <laughs> maybe that would get you over your uh, fear of the rib. I, it, it is exactly right. It's the messiness of the food that bothers me more than anything else. It, it's like these people, everyone's eating with their hands. This is, I feel like I'm on the Flintstones. I don't, that's not something I like. <laughs> but anyway, I know that's not, it's more. I, so you made, you made time, problem. you made time around your Godzilla viewing to watch the Flintstone. That's good. You're, you're diverse. 
<laughs> it's so funny when I was watching Godzilla movies back uh, I don't know 50 years ago no it would be more than that uh, alone I would do it really late at night because in my I, I live in a town uh, outside of Pittsburgh called Sharpsville and in this very small town uh, very little to do on a Saturday night and so the only thing there was to do was uh, Chili Billy Cardilly was on chan- uh, the on the Pittsburgh station and that was the late night horror movie and there was always uh, every other week it seemed a Godzilla movie and I would <laughs> I would eat french fries that was been my thing I'd put them in the oven at you know those frozen fries I put them in the oven and at, at 11:30 I'd make sure they're out and I'm in the basement and I'm watching Godzilla and I and I still remember to this day thinking now this is fun <laughs> what if this is as good as it gets that, yeah exactly. that's fantastic what was tell me again the name of the host sounds like son of Sven Gulli, which is what we yeah, had in the uh, Chicago exactly. area he was our he was our version of Sven Gulli. he was uh Chili Billy Cardilli in fact he was in a movie he was in Dawn of the Dead uh, which wait wait Night of the Living Dead I'm sorry George Romero's first movie was done in Pittsburgh which was terrifying of course and I was a kid then and he was the newscaster in that movie so he was famous. Fantastic. I know, right? There's something you don't learn every day, people. Well, <laughs> good luck to our um, our friend in Geneva. Hopefully you can navigate the uh, rough waters oh, of yeah. the menu. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, uh, the other, uh, by the way, now that we, uh, I mentioned this earlier when we, when we started the podcast that we, we're going to answer, we answered a few questions and then the topic was misfires. And what I found was interesting, and, and I, and we did this with uh, uh, subsequent episodes as well, is what does the internet have to say? And what I am always attracted to, and I don't know if Tim is as well, but these, these clickbait articles. Eight things you need to know, three things you need to know, a phrase you never would use. They all start the same way because then it asks you, okay, well, what are these things? Sure. And so Thanks I don't know. Are you don't attracted? Make the, yeah, don't make this mistake. It's a, how do you not click on this? How do you not do that? The one thing really smart people always say, <laughs> and you got to read it because you want to be a smart person. And, uh, you know. and so in that sense, uh, what I did this time is uh, eight, this, this article was eight major marketing fails and what they teach us. I'm not going to go through all eight of these, but I thought some of them were more interesting than not. Tim, I don't know if you had a chance to look at this. Did any of them stand out for you? Yeah, you know, it's, um, yeah, I appreciate you sending this. And I really like the idea of using this as more of a broad way to tie down the couple of misfires we, we tackled from the listeners. The one that stood out to me right away, uh, because I kind of lived through this and, and spent a little time business-wise digging into this with clients, was the whole idea of, of the new Coke fiasco, which was, I think was the last one on the page. Oh, yeah. So, so for some of our younger listeners um, you know, who don't recall, uh, Coke was kind of the market leader, but was ceding ground to Pepsi. Um, and in uh, the early 80s, I think it was 1985, they had reformulated and launched new Coke. Uh, and this was a big deal. Um, and it was a colossal failure. Um, and the, the whole point of this uh, was they had done you know, extensive taste testing, something I advocate for, something we should all do. Let's let's go out and see what our customers think. So they had crafted this new formula and they had done lots and lots of, of taste testing. So it was a huge surprise to them when there was backlash and it wasn't popular. Um, and, you know, they had to kind of wind it back. So do you, you remember this, um, you know, from- Yes, from I, I remember it a lot. Yeah. So that, that it was- a- I was going to say, as as a product, I tried it, and it was 
The only thing about it was, and, and again, they mentioned this in the article, apparently they had put a, a touch of corn syrup in it, which made it slightly sweeter. And apparently Pepsi, uh, which was the challenger at the time, because Pepsi was doing quite well, uh, that it was the sweetness of Pepsi. And so when they matched it, it, they matched the sweetness. And that, of course, offended, even though in the taste tests, they all say, oh, this is great. But in the marketplace, they all got offended. And, you know, I think it's a perceptual issue. I don't because I think what they learned was, quite frankly, people couldn't tell the taste difference much between the two products, really, in reality. Well, but well, when they, they, they knew the product, they did. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the article kind of says, you know, the, the lesson learned here is, you know, these are kind of uh, beloved and, and longstanding brands and you have to tread lightly when you want to make these changes, which is all very true. But really, that's that's not what happened here. Um, they kind of the the behind the scenes, the inside scoop, um, which I certainly hope is true because I've told the story many many times, um, <laughs> is that they actually did this testing and they had solid data. So they were they were trying to do the right thing because they were trying to be careful um, with this time-tested recipe and this iconic brand. And so they, they did these testings in, in the mall or wherever they did it back when people went to malls. And, uh, you know, the data was really compelling. Um, and what they figured out was that in a taste test portion, a sip or two or three, people preferred the new Coke. But as you said, it was kind of, they had changed the sweetness profile. And the reality is, if you had a full serving of it, they didn't like it oh. nearly as much. So the, the oh, testing was the testing was flawed in that, you know, in a small, we all, we all have friends, colleagues, and associates who are delightful in small doses. And so then you, in, right. you invite them to dinner, you're on a road trip with them to <laughs> New Orleans, and you think, oh my goodness, what did I sign up for? It was... It was that kind of a thing. So, it, it, you know, they had they had taken the right steps, but kind of done them in the wrong way that led them to a bad conclusion. Wow, it's such an interesting insight, Tim. I guess that's why you're good with customer, uh, you know, the customer sort of profiling, because I hadn't thought of the idea of the circumstances of use. I just thought of the taste. But the circumstances of use really determine that. Which is, which is not, by the way, it also triggered another moment in my own life. I, I, I remember... Uh, years ago, we, I was doing some work with a comic that I thought was really funny, really funny. And to your point, I ended up on a road trip with this individual and it was awful. Oh my. Awful. He was, he was funny all the time. And he had the worst table manners a human has ever had. He would literally take food off of the plates of people who have left the restaurant and you're with him. Oh no. And you're with him. And, well, he thought both that was a way to save money and funny. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, who do they think I am because I'm with this person? Yeah, you're guilty by association. <laughs> I was terrible. It was terrible. But anyway, I won't name the person because they're famous. But there were, there were a very sad moment for me because I was disappointed to know that my idol was a human. <laughs> yeah, anyway, there, my turn on this. My turn yes, please. on this. We had a number of these, but we're not going to go through all of them. One that really struck me because it was in the news sometime shortly after this, American Airlines Pass. Did you see that one? The Amer I, in the early what? 80s. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that, that I had kind of generally heard this story, but I thought it was a, like an urban legend. I didn't know it was a real thing. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd heard a follow-up on this story. In the 80s, American Airlines were going through a rough patch. This is what they're telling us. And so uh, they, had, they owed money and all that. And what they offered was the AA Air Pass. And this meant... Get this, listener. First class air travel, unlimited, forever, for 
Yes, now that's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. $250,000 in the eighties. That was a lot of money, still a lot of money today, but apparently it became a huge loss leader because people were just using that. And the lesson learned is <laughs> don't, don't do that. But I had heard a follow-up article, not in this thing, but I remember seeing it in the paper. Somebody had now leveraged, it was something like 1.2 or $1.7 million racked up of savings because not only did they not only were they able to use the pass they got all the points from using the pass from both Come the on. airline and the charge card by which they build things which they got refunded on as well something because there was some kind of double dip that they were doing so they got so much from this they made a, a ton of money and I don't know how they did it but it was a combination of points or everything because they could sell the thing to other it was crazy so anyway, that, bad idea. Real bad idea. But that's amazing. If I mean, first off, and I don't remember what, what year you said this was, but that, I'm sure that was a, it's a lot of money now. It was a lot of money then. But really, I mean, if you're just doing this once, once a month, it doesn't take very long to get your money's worth out, out of a ticket like that. And no. if you're getting the miles for the flights you're not paying exactly. for. And then using, you don't have to use those, but guess what you're getting for Christmas this year? You know, another it's, trip to it's, Hawaii. It's exactly, and they were able to sell these points and trips to other people. And so they it was getting, he was accruing some of this back. I thought, whoa, this is a horrible idea for the airlines. And remember now, from the 80s, can you imagine flying first class all your life from the 80s, 45 years of first class? Uh, I, I I would be taking trips for groceries. You know what I'm saying? One hundred percent. Let's go to a Rome. I'm out of milk. The uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, the, but let's. So I'm always interested in the unintended consequences. I'd be so sorely disappointed with every other aspect of my life when I when I wasn't on a plane in first class. That's true. That's true. You know, that's true. Well, We're the other thing is, if I'm going to eat, I'm going to the airport. Why not fly somewhere, get a dinner, and then fly back the next day for breakfast? You know what I'm saying? Get Take care of the whole thing. Yeah, was, back in the day when security was a breeze, you just kind of show up and walk through and, you know, yeah, that's how you that's do it. Right. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Right. It would just been so simple to have that life. So I thought, oh, so sad, so sad. Uh, so sad it's not available anymore. That's what I thought was most sad about it. So, yeah, well, but anyway, I'm glad well, I, I like this. Uh, I like that you shared that article. There were some, you know, uh, I think those are the two that really caught my attention. And it's it's nice to sort of, I don't know, normalize the experience of these listeners. And and you know, misfires happen, and and, and so then it's about what do you do next, and and you know, how do you get out of that situation? I agree. And speaking of what do you do next, I think we're almost out of time here, Tim. So I think, it, why don't we, uh, we'll have to call this a day. Yeah. I think you should be closing this out. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's put a bow on this package. It was re really good conversation. Uh, ha happy to be part of it. Um, first, let me say we've got a spectacular episode coming up next week. We're going to talk about dealing with complainers. Uh, I'm sure we all have complainers in our lives. So let's uh, make sure you set your calendars and tune in for next week's episode. You don't want to miss it uh tip of the cap to jap edinger our exceptional executive producer who makes all of this happen thank you jack and of course a big thank you to our listeners um we want to hear about the drama the dilemmas the conundrums that you face at work so as always emails to info at cubicleconfidential.com tweets to cubicleconfide1 uh, thank you chris thank you jack any party comments from either of you? 
Yeah, we'd just like to apologize to any uh, listeners that may be accordion players or Prius drivers. <laughs> we didn't mean to alienate you here. <laughs> yes, very good. Please don't sue us. All right, thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>